if we're able to affect 10 group of 10 people, 10 students, then I know it was worth it. So I think that just keeps you going. It's knowing that this is a real problem and this really needs to be addressed. Um, and I know that I have the opportunity to do it. So why give up? Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of Oh My Curry Goodness Podcast. My name is Hamza Islam, and on this podcast, I talk to Gen Zers who are making a difference in their communities about the things that have shaped them into who they are today. When it came to naming the podcast Oh My Curry Goodness, I took the Oh My Goodness part because when we hear stories that are interesting, we say Oh My Goodness because we can't believe that these are the things that have shaped something into what it is today. And then I named it Curry because as someone who's South Asian, I just love to eat curry. But one of the things that I really am curious about is just learning a person's story and understanding life from their perspective. And I hope that from from an audience perspective, you are able to feel inspired knowing that regardless of what obstacles that you are currently trying to overcome, you are going to overcome them at some point in your future. You just have to keep trying, persevering and believing and also realizing that it is okay to be vulnerable and just be a human being because I want human beings to be known for just being human beings because that's what we all are and we all have a unique story. Now, my guest this week is Nancy Bosnoyan, who is a sleep activist and the founder and CEO of End No Sleep, which is an organization that looks to raise awareness on the issue of sleep hygiene. And I've met many activists on through this podcast, mental health, climate change, just to name a few. Sleep activism is not something I'm really aware of. And so Nancy is the is actually the first sleep activist I've met. So I'm really excited to know more about sleep activism and more importantly, her story in general. So Nancy Bosnoyan, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, of course. I am really excited as well. And I really want to be able to get to know more about you personally, but I really do want to start with the activism part because I, I mean active anyone who is an activist their journey is difficult because no matter what they believe in they're always going to be told no or rejected and as someone who is a sleep activist i am curious to know what it is like to be you trying to tell people that you are a sleep activist and you know just what what i guess what has the reaction been like because you know like i said activism is hard but then when you're trying to tell people that you're a sleep activist and knowing that not many people may know about what that is, how awkward is it for you personally just to kind of tell people a little bit about what you're advocating for? Yeah, of course. So I think for me, the journey of like activism or even using the word um, sleep activist started when I did a lot of research. So I was really passionate about sleep and like doing the work in the field because I was struggling a lot from it and I was a victim of like their own cause. But what really started it was when I was like trying to Google and find out more about um, sleep, I found out that sleep is actually sleep deprivation or sleep problems are actually a crucial part of the cycle of poverty. So if you want to kind of contribute to the cycle of ending poverty, then you need to address the sleeping issue. And then I came across a lot of articles that talked about, you know, um, in the homeless population, like fix our sleep, right? If you fix our sleep, you can fix other things as well. Um, and that really struck me because I never in my life considered sleep a luxury. And it was really odd to me that, you know, that in for so many people, 
sleep isn't something that they have access to easily. Um, and I really fueled me to this work even further. And in terms of activism, is like really campaigning and change that we need in the world to address sleep deprivation or rising sleep problems. And a few of those include like later school start times or flexible working hours. Um, even night shifts is a huge issue because your body never really gets used to your circadian rhythm never really gets used to adjusting to that type of schedule, but yet we need, you know, doctors who work overnight shifts and, you know, you know, at hotels, et cetera. So how can we fix long-term kind of things that have existed in society for such a long time um, and fix them in a way where we're actually able to help better people sleep. And that's really kind of what sleep activism is in general is talking about that these issues do affect sleep and then sleep affects mental health, physical health, and really everything. So um, that's kind of the main reason why, you know, I do what I do, like the work that I do is because, you know, I've suffered from it and I know how it affects me, but I have also spoken to a lot of community members in different communities and then seen there's a really big need, but not enough noise that exists. So hopefully with the work that we're doing with No Sleep, then we can change that. Now, there are a lot of people that will look at the work that you're doing, and I often feel as if there are two sides of the equation. There's there's one group of people that will support what you do, and then there's another group of people that will just criticize you for the vision that you have. And I want to speak to that group, not because of the hatred, but more so because I think you and I, well, we can all agree that everyone has a different story. No one's life is the same, and everyone has different circumstances. So there are a lot of people that will, how would I say this? There, there are a lot of people that I guess don't, that can't afford to sleep as much because they have some sort of issue going on that, and, and they have to do X, Y, and Z in order to provide for their families. And then oftentimes that means they have to sacrifice their sleep. And then there are those that will go, well, Nancy, what you're doing is great but I'm totally fine sleeping three, four or five hours a day and I, and I feel fine. And so how do you try to talk to people? And I think it's the most difficult thing as Gen Zers, it's really difficult to be able to talk to older generations and try to tell them that, you know, what some of the things, why some of the things that are what you're doing now is actually bad. Cause it, it's almost sense, sense of like, I guess a lot of people will look at us and go, are you trying to tell them how to live and adapt? And we want to be respectful, but we also want to be educative, and that if that makes sense. So, how do you try and address and talk to those people? Like, what do you think they're missing? Even though there are reasons why they can't afford to sleep seven, eight hours a day, which is, I think, like the normal amount of hours you're supposed to sleep. Yeah, I mean, this is like a very, I think, complex kind of question that has so many layers to it, and um, to kind of address that side of it is to and like have read his books etc and um he mentioned something that really kind of helped me understand that perspective too and is the fact that sleep science is fairly new so for years we have slept and people thought it was a time it's a waste of time because like what are you doing right nothing you're just resting that culture and it's like who am i to say oh okay no it's not but the way to approach this is 
through science and research and numbers. And I think a lot of people, for example, one thing that we do see, and especially specifically working in high schools that I hopefully like also address this part of this culture you're talking about too, is the fact that parents want their children to stay up late and study to get better grades instead of sleeping early and not doing as much studying. And we see that culture prevalent because the parents were never taught about the side effects of sleep deprivation they don't know for them it's like they want the best for their children and the best is for their children to succeed and then same goes with a lot of people who say oh I feel fine after like a four hours of sleep my body's used to it to be honest your body's really absolutely never used to it it is used to it in a sense where it continuously compensates for it and through compensating for it, you're affecting other things right like you may feel fine you may just be anxious and um to you like it's become part of your daily routine. So you are fine on four hours of sleep, but you drink like three cups of coffee a day. And then, you know, you drink alcohol or you compensate with different things that has become your new norm. And then without knowing that, that you're doing these, you're taking these actions because you're so sleep deprived, then um, your answer would be, I'm feeling fine. But then when we tell you, oh, you know, glucose level change with sleep deprivation, they, that may not be something you instantly feel like the second day or stuff like that, but your body is just really never used to it. And I think education and numbers um, and facts, not opinion, but like facts, research study facts are the best way to approach it. Because like you said, I can't go in and say like, this is what I think you should do, but let's say these are your options to live a healthier and better life and it's up to you if you want to take that route and then we also understand systematic changes that need to happen like there are that's exactly why kind of a no sleep exists because there are communities where the parents will do whatever it takes to provide for their children or for themselves like that that becomes like much harder to address but that's still an issue that has to be addressed when it comes to sleep deprivation and stuff like that to be honest, I've had a very awkward relationship when it comes to sleep. So there will be days where I'll sleep six hours a day, seven hours a day, eight hours a day, and sometimes even nine, nine hours a day. And so um, I am trying to work on that. But it is really interesting to realize that sleep does play a huge part and that even if you are able to work or operate on a certain amount of time, what are you doing during the day to make sure that you're able to be your normal self? And so that's that's a really interesting way of seeing it. And um, I, and I didn't realize how much sleep, when you look at it in that case, just how much, it, how much it should matter to certain people just because of what, um, what are some of the things that you're gonna have to deal with in order to just be your normal, in order to be a functional human being, if that makes sense. Yeah. But I wanna now transition, obviously we'll talk about sleep activism later. I want to focus on you now because like we said in the introduction activism is hard being an entrepreneur is hard as well and you know you're going down a very difficult path just because activism has a lot of takes a lot of energy and obviously entrepreneur we all know uh requires a lot of energy as well who, who were some of the people that you looked up to that helped you realize that being an entrepreneur is something you wanted to do? Did you feel like this was something that you kind of figured out on your figured out on your own, or was it more about well, because of so and so, I'm able to now incorporate that into end no sleep or just the kind of person I am today? 
So for me, it all started, I think I stumbled upon entrepreneurship. It's nothing that, you know, I, I had seen someone do it and I was like, oh, I want to do it. Well, I had seen my dad, but I didn't know he was an entrepreneur until like two years after NOCEP was a year or two after NOCEP was established. Um, and I think for me, like starting NOCEP or starting the organization wasn't so much of like, I want to start a business. It was more of, I want to start this project to address this issue um, because after the Syrian civil war, like at very young age, I felt this huge sense of like gratitude. And um, also I felt very like grateful to have privilege, I think is the right word. I felt very, very privileged, like grateful to have been alive, grateful to have had a new country accept me, et cetera. So I felt very much like I wanted to give back to my community at all times. So I started doing a lot of volunteer work, got into social impact. Um, and then when I started suffering from sleeping issues, that's when kind of put two and two together, like my previous experience um, and this cause, and then it, you know, building a legal entity, et cetera. Um, and then I realized like, oh, wow, this is what my dad had done, like at his, when he was 18. It's like, oh, that's cool. Cause I'd been registering for years seeing what he had been doing and like the company has been building, but never thought that I'd take kind of a similar path in, in terms of field. Um, so it was, it was really kind of cool, a, a good aha moment realizing, oh, putting two and two together is like pretty awesome. I love the fact that you're able to take inspiration from your dad. And the interesting thing about the term entrepreneur, so for a long time, I used to think entrepreneur was just someone making money. And that could be true in a sense, but I remember having a conversation with another guest a few weeks ago where he talked about his definition of an entrepreneur. And it's for him, he thinks entrepreneur is someone that finds a problem and then thinks about how can I solve that problem? And ultimately, as easy as it sounds, I mean, obviously that's finding a solution to a problem is extremely difficult. But when you put it into that context, I think anyone can be an entrepreneur. And it's true, money is important at the end. I mean, that is true, but I don't think it's the main thing when it comes to entrepreneur. It's just more about finding a problem or recognizing that there's a problem and then thinking about how do I find a solution? That's what I think. I don't know if that's something you can relate to, but when when my, when my that person that I interviewed said that, it really helped me understand that maybe there's a different, maybe there's something I'm missing when it comes to the idea of someone being an entrepreneur. No, yeah, totally. I actually was reading this book, I think, um, by a Harvard Business School professor. I can't remember their name exactly, and I don't want to mistake it for another, but um, it's called Why Startups Fail, an incredible book. And it lays down like, what what is a startup? What is a successful startup? A startup that fails, et cetera. And it talks about what, you know, Harvard Business School defines as entrepreneur or what, you know, um, professors define entrepreneur. That was exactly that. Um, the idea of like finding a problem, recognizing a problem, finding a solution that is like accessible and feasible. Um, and, you know, that was kind of the short description of that. So I totally agree. It was new to me too, in terms of like finding an exact definition, but really helpful to know. Yeah, I'm, I'm really thankful that that's what it is because yeah, I was just so worried about like, oh, how am I going to make money? It, it's all about money and realizing that for a lot of people, it's more about impact than than money. But I want to know, you, you mentioned you growing up in Syria and 
I think it's really important to be able to talk about one's experiences growing up in a, in a particular region. So growing up in the Middle East, I think for a lot of people, especially in the United States, they'll look at Middle Eastern countries and they'll have these weird or not weird assumptions, but they'll have these unfair assumptions that Middle East is about is a region that just goes to war every day, 24 seven. And it reminds me of what people say about South Asian countries, because I grew, my parents grew up in Bangladesh, which is a South Asian country. And so people will say, oh, it's a poverty stricken country. And what I'll say to that is it is true. There are there is a lot of poverty, but to make it sound that it's uh, you see poverty everywhere is it's, un, it's unfair They have. It has its really beautiful moments. And so for a lot of people, well, people will look at Syria and see that, oh, wow, you must have grown up where everyone's just fighting all the time. And I don't think that's really the case. So I'd love for you to talk about what it was like actually growing up in Syria and just how different it is compared to what other people will think Syria looks or Syria is. Yeah, I think there are so many assumptions about that 100%. Um, and I think I also relate to it in a sense where my parents recently, my recently it's been like three years, moved to Cairo. And um, unfortunately, like the assumptions still exist about Egypt um, in terms of like negative assumptions. Um, so I relate to it being born in Syria, but I also relate to it being in a different Middle Eastern country. And I think for Syria, like I had such a great time growing up. I had such an incredible childhood. There was nothing that I think we were really left behind from or on. Like, of course, there are certain things when you live like in a small country like Syria, like you don't have maybe huge amusement parks. We didn't have malls. Like those were things were fairly new because it was also such a long time ago. I'm talking about like my childhood 2010. So um, a while back. But in terms of that, it was a very safe country. Like it was insanely safe. There was, you know, it was very easy, relaxed, happy, like great food, um, great organic food. Like there were so many things that I think people don't think about in terms of like quality of life was pretty great. Um, people got along fine in terms of religion. Religion was never an issue. I was like an Armenian in Syria. So, you know, we never felt excluded or left out. It was one of the greatest, I think. It was also a very historically rich country. And it's so beautiful in terms of like landscape and stuff like that. And all of these great aspects of it just were started. Like nobody obviously focused on that anymore. And people all they think about when they think about Syria now is the fact that it's in war, et cetera. And I think one thing that is really negative about having that just one simple assumption about, you know, um, Syria being at war for so long is the fact that um, the people that still live there, the next generation of students who are growing up, et cetera, still need opportunities. And it's really upsetting to just overlook that because there are so many incredible talents in Syria, so many incredible, you know, potential new entrepreneurs that can, um, you know, have a huge impact on the world today. So um, I think just in general, when we talk about Middle East, Middle Eastern countries or Arabic countries, because they've been at war, like you said, everything else is forgotten. Um, when I moved to Egypt, people asked me like what type of food I ate, which I thought, which I found like a bit ignorant, but also it's like, they've never that's what the media shows them. So the media just shows the negative parts and people who haven't traveled, they don't know that so many new incredible places exist, that there are so many options for food. It's kind of the same 
as when I'm in LA, like, I don't feel any difference in terms of like what I eat, for example. Um, but I think that we have to do a much better job of being, having a well diverse images in like the media that would be really helpful for people to know, because there's so many incredible things to see and explore here. You bring up an interesting point, which is the role that media plays. And I often think that media is kind of like that one friend you have who is trying to help you, but makes the situation much worse. So they'll often say, like breaking news, civil war happening in Syria. And it's like, well, here comes, it's it's just war. And then now you're like, no, it's not, it's not what it is. It's not what it's about. There's so much more to see. And so I think you, you make a really good point, which is media plays such a huge role in influencing the way we see other countries or other ethnicity groups. And it was funny because um, this past semester for one of my communication classes, I was doing a presentation on Islamophobia and talking about how much the media can play a role in influencing the way people see Muslims. And so as a Middle Easterner, and also because you are part Armenian as well, how much pressure do you put on yourself in terms of trying to put a positive light? Because you talk about how you want to um, inspire the next generation of entrepreneurs or whatever field they want to be in. And it's it's in, and there are people like you who are trying to make an impact in especially like your instance, sleep hygiene. So how much pressure do you put on yourself trying to put a positive image on Middle Easterners, knowing that Middle Easterners isn't just a, I don't know, like they're whatever version people think of, but rather that there is a positive image and we need to continue to highlight the work that people like you are doing, regardless of what field it is that they're in. Yeah, I think uh, the the pressure I put on myself is really huge. Um, I there I think there are two a, a few different aspects for it for me. One, like you said, continuing to paint this positive image because I think that exists. Like I'm not trying. I'm not the first one. I'm following in the footsteps of so many other incredible Middle Eastern immigrants who've done incredibly insane, like life changing, world changing work. And I think I'm just a part, I'm hopefully trying to be like just a part of that and continuing to push that forward. But also there's a great sense of community that I always bring with me anywhere I go or with whatever I do. Um, in terms of being from an ethnically like minority group and then also being an immigrant, a Syrian immigrant, that's something I can't just put behind me for me personally. And Anywhere I go, I always remember, oh, I'm I'm representing this. Even though nobody tells me that ever, like, oh, you have to represent this. This is just something I'm an assumption or I'm putting on myself or a pressure I'm putting on myself. But it because Syria was like a small country and being Armenian, like I'm again from a small group of people, um, I always feel that I have a huge sense of community wherever I go. And that just helps push me forward and sometimes the pressure gets too much in my head where I'm like oh my god I can't it, it's paralyzing but I think usually on on most of the times it's it's rather motivating and it even if I feel like oh I don't want to do this for myself anymore I feel like oh I owe it to a bigger community to continue to push forward and achieve my goals so it's it's good and bad but I think mostly good yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I applaud the work that you're doing and realizing that you want to be able to put a positive image, but it was also scary because it's like, you know, and I don't want to 
bring up the conversation of mental health, but it's like, you know, you're putting so much pressure on yourself and how you're able, how you're able to handle all the pressure and the expectations. And even though, cause I, I mean, there are a lot of people in this world that may go, well, I know you're not the only person trying to show a positive light. It is still relatively important to realize that I'm people. I mean, I'm, I'm no, I know I'm not the only person, but I do still have a responsibility to show a positive image and get as many people involved. So it, it is, it's scary to be in that situation. How do you kind of, and it's, it's actually interesting. Um, how do you try to just be calm and, and be, be present because it is a scary expectation. I mean, we talked, I mean, like I said, activism, entrepreneurship is hard, but the pressure you're putting on, even though some people don't see it, it is still a pressure that an expectation that people have. So how do you try to just, I guess, remain calm and not try to think about too much of the future, but try to be, try to be present. Cause that's, that's when you're, when you have a lot of expectations, it's so easy to just think about the future, but then not be present in the moment. Um, to, to be very, very honest, I struggle with this a lot. Um, and I've struggled with this to the point where it had been completely paralyzing for me, where I just had like a complete breakdown and I just couldn't move forward because I had so much expectation set up for myself and age-wise too. Um, and of course, like with social media, seeing other people achieve certain things at certain ages. And I felt like very behind with everything that I wanted to do. It was really hard. And I think the best way to be present, well, recently I got into a lot of, you know, meditation and, and all the self care and help stuff that I think just fit me and my lifestyle very well. And I do a lot of just like journaling now in the, like I have specific morning routines that I keep to myself to just be very present. Like I've read a lot of Dr. Joe Dispenza's work. Um, he talks about meditation. Like I know we spoke about this, Jay Shetty, of course, he's incredible. Like you have to listen to his work or read his work. Um, and just a lot of stuff like that. And also honestly, therapy, um, therapy was really helpful. And for me into realizing a few things, one that, you know, there is not one certain path to get to where you want to be. You can still keep, cause for me, I've always been the type of person who never wanted a plan B. Cause I think if you have a plan B, that means you have a backup plan for like subconsciously, you're telling yourself that that might not work. Um, but understanding that, you know, you can still, it can always be plan A, but it can look like a different road. It doesn't have to be that one road on the like navigation. It, there's always alternatives and it's okay if you take the alternative. And then two is like a step backwards is better than no step at all. So a step backwards or steps forward is still movement. And all you want to do is continuously move rather than just stay still. So I think these things are really helpful for me, but I still struggle with that. And um, I'm just better at being able to handle it, I think, now than before. You remind me a lot of when it comes to going towards a destination, you don't have to follow the exact directions because there are oftentimes different obstacles. So it's about, it's okay to, um, I forget, oftentimes whenever I use a GPS, the common thing is, oh, recalculating, recalculating, yeah. recalculating. <laughs> and it's like, there's, there's no one way to get from one destination to another. You can still get to plan A, but you might have to take those recal. You might have to hear the word recalculating, recalculating. And it is interesting that you, you have this mindset of no plan B, because there are a lot of people who have a plan B and yet 
it basically means, and I'm sure there's a reason why, but ultimately you, you kind of brought this up, which is you're kind of set, you're, you're basically saying I'm giving up on plan A and it's, 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 it's an interesting mindset to have. Another thing that you, that I really found interesting was when you said uh, a step backwards is better than no step, no steps at all. And what I kind of remind myself, I don't know if this relates to what you just said, but it's better to like, I want to be limitless rather than limit it or limited. And so like not just constantly being able to challenge myself and realizing that how can I try to be better if I fail? What are the things that went wrong and how can I try to be better rather than just being stationary and being just, okay, let me do it this way because I want to play it safe. I don't know if I just, if that made sense or if that correlates to what you said, but that's kind of how I see things as, especially as I've done this podcast and being able to talk to a lot of people and just knowing their mindset. No, 100% completely. I think it's very similar to what I was talking about too. And it's in terms of, you know, also recently read, not recently, a few months back, um, this book called Mindset. And it talks about the, like talking about failure. It's like failing is better than, you know, not doing it at all or doing it in a specific way to ensure that you succeed and um yeah it's it that has also really helped me it's like realizing that you know better to be like oh at least i tried rather than oh if i tried only if i tried i would have could have like um succeeded so it's like two different types of mindsets and i realized a bit of me because of fear was like stuck in the fixed mindset and now i'm just trying to transition into you know if I fail, it's a lesson learned. Just moving forward. I wanna, I wanna actually talk now. I wanna talk about um, grow, uh, grow uh, moving to the United States because I think you're the, you've been one of many guests who I've had the chance to interview, and they talked about moving to the United States. And it's obviously a common question: What was it like moving to the United States? And I know it's a common question, and I love asking different questions, but I do want to be able to ask you this because I think it's really interesting to understand just a person's perspective. And like I said in the beginning, right, like no one story is the same. So for you, what was it like moving to the United States and some of the difficult challenges that you had to overcome? Because I think I remember, and I may have met, botched this memory up, but I think you said that this was almost like an accident in some case, if that makes sense. So I guess what were some of the challenges that you had to overcome when uh, moving to America? Yeah. So for, for my family and I, I was only 12 when I moved and it was never a move. So we had 2012. So 12, so in 2000, I think early 2000, my parents had applied for a green card back when they were in Syria. And then 12 years later, they, we received a letter that we were accepted and then we had to go to the United States and the war had kind of started then, but it was never in the city itself. So you would hear explosions, see explosions, but it was in nearby cities. Um, so we fairly felt safe. Um, I think a big mindset of just living through war and surviving is the fact that it becomes a new norm and you just get used to it. And so we packed our bags. Like I had a dog and Annie, everything at home and family, friends, um, clothes and stuff like that. Just it's very small stuff that you don't think about. And we packed for a 15 day vacation. We were going to LA, getting our green cards and then coming back. And then when we went to LA, 
um, a day before our flight back to Syria, I guess the war had really progressed to being in the city. And my grandma had called my dad, letting him know, you know, there had not been electricity. There had not been hot water for about a week. And the airport of Aleppo had shut down. And I think then and there, my dad just made the decision that we're not going back. And then we stayed in LA for the next 10 years without going back to Syria at all. So it was really huge because also the my dad's business was completely stolen by the rebels. So we lost everything in a matter of hours. Our our lives completely changed. And while I was really young, I I I do remember some challenges and some I think my brain has just completely blocked. Um I I remember how kind of hard it was to adjust because being so young and moving schools in general it it's you know, it's hard because you're young and you're close to your friends, but not having anyone at all in a new city where your parents don't even speak the main language. And then, you know, my, my older sister had to really step up because we both spoke English um, and, you know, really had to figure out, you know, getting a social security, getting, you know, a credit score. How do you apply for a credit card? Um, all these small things that, you know, don't really cross your mind. Um, and I think the hardest challenge was, is, you know, everything, but at the same time, it's like you're in survivor mode, so you will do anything and everything just to keep going. And then of course, years later, then you'll have to deal with all the consequences of all the numerous challenges you face as at such a young age. But I will say that in a very odd way, I'm very grateful for it. Um, gave me so many different opportunities that I think otherwise I would have never even dreamt of or have never even crossed my mind if I was um, still in Syria. But of course, the consequences of that are really huge um, because my dad had to also move away and he had to live in Egypt to be able to provide for our family. So it was just so much going on. And um, I think it's just the emotional kind of wreck that comes with trying to survive a new country is really hard too. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I know in previous interviews you have done this. So I, I know I was like, oh, I, I want to ask it differently, but I think it's really important to be able to highlight just, or just understand a perspective of one's person of, of a person and the obstacles that they had to overcome. And you brought up something which was about gratefulness. It's, it's a, it's a weird term because, and I spoken with this with a guest a few months ago, which is that Oftentimes people look at gratefulness and they'll look at the positive sides or the positive things. They're like, I'm so grateful for my family, friends, but then we don't focus a lot on the negative side because, because of maybe just how bad or uh, traumatizing the memory was. And so obviously, you know, you have your challenges now, but you're also at a better place if we can say than when you first started, how do you tell yourself? Cause I feel like when it comes to the idea of gratefulness, we don't like talk, talking about the negative stuff. How do you try to tell yourself that it's going to be okay at the end of the day, that whatever stage, and this is how kind of how you talked about how when it comes to, you don't need a plan B, you need a plan A and you, you will get there. It takes more time or maybe less time, just depends. How do you kind of tell yourself that even though you're going through all this stuff happening right now, that in the long run, it's going to be okay at the end of the day? I think one thing that, have I have recently kind of stumbled upon was this idea that it has always been okay um in a in a very odd sense so if 
if you look like your subconscious mind takes in from past examples, it means reality. And it's like looking back to every single worry that I've had, it has always turned out okay. So based on that like equation, then I know that this time it will also end up okay. And okay doesn't mean that I will end up being like really there will be no hardships and it will all be sailing and it will all be great. But in a sense that it will be worth going through that um, for a better, greater picture. And I think another thing is um, like becoming is better than being. So kind of going through that will shape me more. And of course, it's very easy, easier. It's way easier said than done because it's like, why do you have to struggle so much? We have to go through all of these things to like what for? But I think if everything came really easily, then I would have never known the worth of any of that. So now I kind of have, it has really shaped my character. It has really shaped how I think it has really shaped my perspective. It's made me a more empathetic person. Um, I think one quote that I really relate to in terms of everything being okay is like there is every adversity, there's like an opportunity. And now my mindset is every time I go through something, I'm like, okay, how can I, how can I use this? Or like, how can I make the most out of this? Um, but looking at past and it's always turned out okay. And I'm, and I know that because of that, then moving forward, it'll also, regardless of how hard it is, like life has different ways of showing up for you. So I'm not going to lie. I was actually kind of laughing as you were talking about this. And one of the reasons why was because, um, you, like you said, you know, being, you're going to have hardships, but it's also recognizing that you're always going to be okay. And I think that's a really interesting mindset. And whereas me, usually like if I ever fail an exam, I feel like that's the end of the world, but maybe that's because I'm South Asian. So, so I'll always see these memes where they go like, if you miss one question or you don't get hundred percent, you're a failure. And even though they're memes, it kind of sticks with me because I sometimes see that a lot in, in like my community in the South Asian community. So I think being able to just recognize that there's always a there's 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 a good in the bad like even if 75% of the situation is bad there is a 25% good in it so it is an interesting mindset I I want now want to transition to um end no sleep but you're going to hate me I want to do talk about plan B in the sense that I read somewhere that a lot of the sleep issues you encountered were in high school and that ultimately inspired or one of the things that inspired you for end no sleep um, and your passion for sleep activism. Did you always, were you always involved in sleep activism in one way or was there something else that you were interested in and, and you were just, and it was just one of those things where because of sleep activism or because of the issue that I had, I'm going into this. Was it, what was it like, were you always invested in sleep activism or was it more of like, I picked it up because of the issues that I had? Um, I think the second one, I picked it up because of the issues that I had. I didn't even know it was a thing. I, I, I was once like, I didn't even know how to label it. Like, I think I labeled it. I put a label on it like way later um, because just to be able to describe my work to other people and even that label wasn't really helpful, but yeah, I, I really just stumbled upon it. I think it was something that I had been suffering from and dealing with for way too long and nobody was taking me seriously. Um, it was something that I wasn't the only one struggling from it. It wasn't like very unique to me. It was mostly all of my friends. 
so many of my colleagues, like once I, I think a, a huge aha moment for me was when I was working and we were talking about sleep and a few people, a few of my colleagues were like, Oh, I've done a sleep study. And I was like, wait, nobody ever talks about this. You know, so many people are struggling with sleep. Why is this not being talked about? Because it's something that needs to be addressed. Um, and I think the more I got into it, it's like, oh, sleep affects the U.S. economy by so many, so billion dollars. Nobody ever talks about that. Um, and it's insane. I was like, why is, why is, why is this not, you know, climate change as a huge platform, um, not, not in a great way, like as it should, because it's a huge problem. But it's like, how do we get people to talk about this problem that's not only affecting economy, it's affecting education, mental health, physical health, um, jobs, poverty, all of that. And it's, and it really was just a very motivating factor for me to just keep going, especially when I, the more I spoke with vulnerable communities, like the ultimate luxury. And we were always meant to sleep a minimum of eight hours a night. So um, it's really upsetting that so many people around the globe can't, don't have access to that. Um, so I think that was a huge kind of motivating factor too push my work forward. We talked about in the beginning how, and you just kind of brought it up, which is that climate change usually gets a lot of attention, um, not for good reasons, but nevertheless, still an attention. And do you ever find yourself, and obviously you have the intention of raising awareness of the issue. Do you ever see yourself kind of competing in the sense where it's like, hey guys, climate change is getting act or getting attention. Why isn't sleep getting enough, or why isn't sleep activism getting enough attention? Like you get what I mean? Like do you, in the sense of like, you're trying to compete with one another rather than just realizing that this is an issue nevertheless. I don't know if that made sense, but like in terms of like, you're trying to now compete for attention rather than just recognizing that guys, this is an issue and we need to talk about this more. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think maybe competing is or isn't a good word, but definitely it's like we, there has to be space in the media for this. Um, and we just have to figure out a way that gets journalists to look at different pitches or to get to look at the attention, like give the this issue the attention it needs. I think um, it's something that, you know, for me, it's trying to get this issue the attention that it deserves in order to make changes. Um, I think lately, though, we have seen a huge surge, like Dr. Matthew Walker's book, got huge media attention, which is incredible. I think, you know, it's not definitely like for me, it's not like, oh, I know sleep needs attention or my work needs and not at all. It's like this issue needs attention. And if I can pitch on somebody else's work and have them move forward, if that's going to raise awareness, then 100% here for it. But definitely um, it's just with everything else going on right now, it, it is in in a way that it becomes and some issues getting more attention than others due to certain reasons. And um, I think the one thing is like, you should never give up on it, continue to keep pushing forward and hoping like they will have room, you will get them to listen to you at one way or another. As an entrepreneur, you have a lot of challenges that you're constantly overcoming or trying to overcome. And I often think of everyone's journey is kind of like a video game in the sense that you're going to be over, you're going to be trying to uh, get past each and every level but it's not like you have an end game you're just going to continue continue to uh move up levels until basically you die or whatever um if that's the correct term 
But <laughs> <laughs> what have been some of the most difficult things you had to overcome as an entrepreneur? And secondly, I know oftentimes people ask others, what keeps you going? What I do want to ask is what prevents you from giving up? Because like we mentioned, being an entrepreneur is so difficult. And um, I'll give you a small example. So one of the things, I, this is my fourth podcast. I've quit three previously because I just didn't get, something wasn't working. And I still have my challenges, but what prevents me from giving up is the fact that I'm always curious to learn about people's stories. Yes, the analytics and the numbers and whatever you want to go with, that matter that has its importance. But at the end of the day, the thing that prevents me from giving up is that I'm always curious to learn about people's stories. So for you, what have been some of the most difficult things as an entrepreneur? And what are some of the things that really prevent you from really raising the white flag? Okay. I think lately for the one of the difficult things that as I've the challenge I face as an entrepreneur is myself. 100%. I think I'm my biggest supporter, but also my biggest enemy. And I think as an entrepreneur, your mindset is key to helping flourish your business. If you're always negative, like the results won't be the same. And then the way you think and the way you feel about, I think your business or organization or whatever you're doing um, plays a huge impact on the results that you will get. And I think just keep pushing forward regardless, because when you're doing whatever you're doing, there's so many negative negative things people will say. So for me at the beginning of the journey, it was really easy to block that out because as I, you know, I was, I, it fueled me. Like I was like, oh, you don't think I can do this? Well, watch me do it. And then with time goes by and then you're just, I'm putting so much time and energy into this. And I'm like, okay, the results aren't getting in as fast as maybe when there were momentum. And then people are still telling me, well, see, now it's been two years. There, there are no results. The results you wanted aren't there. And it's like closing my eyes and still pushing forward. Cause I know in like maybe another year or maybe the next day, the results will come. That's when you, that that's, that's the mindset that you need. And sometimes for me lately, that's been hard because you've been, the time I've been putting into this, like, oh, um, I do see results, but not as much as I wanted to. So it's really just my mind and me. And I think that has been the biggest challenge for me is just overcoming that and overcoming the negative thinking and being able to ground myself into just looking at the work and the numbers and not making so much about me, but more. And then the second thing that keeps me going is that one person that this has affected. I sometimes like get messages from a volunteer or a person who's, you know, who's just heard about us. And it's like, thank you so much for the work you do. Because at the end of the day, I know that for me, for like specifically, I know this needs to exist. If it's not me, somebody else needs to, this is a real issue. Like I, there is about it that is made up or looked so glamorous for like the media or something. Like, this is, this is really affecting people. This is really affecting the economy. This is really affecting people's mental health care. Like, I've suffered from it. I wish somebody like something like Ennosip existed to help me. And I know that other people need it too because of the the surveys we've done and I know students need it. So I just feel like at the end of the day, even if all the glorious parts are taken away, if we're able to affect 10 group of 10 people, 10 students, then I know it was worth it. So 
I think that just keeps you going. It's knowing that this is a real problem and this really needs to be addressed. Um, and I know that I have the opportunity to do it. So why give up? Right. I think we often underestimate the importance of the number one and how important that number is. Because for a lot of us, when it comes to impact, we want to impact as many people as possible. And sometimes we don't know if what we're doing is right or wrong. But as long as one person says, hey, you've actually played a huge part in my life, or you have actually helped me in whatever that may be, that's always a positive sign. Um, but in terms of when you first started and people would, would doubt you and, they just, and you just said, just watch, I'm going to make it happen. It eerily reminds me of my eighth grade geometry teacher. He would just say, just watch. But the only reason why he would say just watch is because none of us were paying attention to what he was saying. So when it came to like proofs and everything, I was just like, what's happening? And he just go, just watch. And so while that's like irrelevant, um, it, that those two words do resonate with me even now. And I'm sure with you, because there are going to be people that will doubt you. And sometimes that's really weird because in social media, we only see like the positive side or in like outlets or whatever that may be. But then these kind of conversations, when you're telling me that there are people that doubt you, you kind of have this like this 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 fight or matchup where it's like or this mentality of I'm going to prove you wrong. It may not be anytime soon, but it will be at the end of the day. Um, and I also think that we are our biggest competition or our biggest obstacle because we are our biggest allies. But then there's always this one th th um, person that's telling us you're not good enough. And it's like those Disney movies where there's like, there's like the good angel and the bad angel. And I was like, oh, that's just weird. What the heck? Why do they have these angels? And then I realized we do have this devilish version of ourselves that are telling us you're not good enough. So these are really weird challenges. And I think, I don't think it's just an issue that entrepreneurs have. I think that's an issue everyone has, but it's just a, just a matter of just reminding yourself that one, you are good. And secondly, as long as you're impacting one person, then you're doing something right. I don't know if, if these are the things that you, I mean, I don't know. I feel like I just summed up everything you just said, but I don't know. I mean, I just love what you just said. I don't know if you want to add on to that. No, I, yeah, you summed it up perfectly. I think that's exactly what it is. And like you said, you know, I, I think people, for me, it's gone to a place where no matter what people say, like I'm trying to stop caring about any of that, but I think the hardest part is when you're negative to yourself, it's like when your mind is negative to you. And I think that's the worst of all. That's one thing that, um, we should, if we all have, like, we should all overcome it because your mind should be your best friend. And that's the, what, that's the way to go to write, to go through life. And it's, it's really hard to make that your best friend, um, because of all the negativity that exists around the world, like the news, the media, it's always so focused on the negative and we take so much negativity day after day after day. And, um, it's really important to keep ourselves, um, not toxic positive, but stable or peaceful so i completely agree with kind of everything you said and yeah that's exactly kind of my thought process through it all too you're obviously very passionate when it comes to sleep activism and obviously there's everyone here everyone in the world has something they're very passionate about but oftentimes um i guess we have a unique we have a weird relationship with our passion so that what i've learned when i when i've interacted with uh 
with either guests or just friends in general, everyone is passionate about something, but I think a lot of people mistaken the mistake, the fact that just because you're passionate about something doesn't mean everything goes your way, but then you, people might go, well, then why are you, then what does that mean that even if you're passionate, you're going to go through, you're not going to like what you're passionate about. And then it's like, no, then why are you passionate in the first place? So I guess what I'm trying to say is oftentimes people think you're, if you're passionate, that means good things are going to happen. But what I've often found is that, and I spoke to a friend of mine about this, which is that I would treat passion when you're passionate about something as like a marriage or like your kid in the sense where it's like, you have your bad moments, but you also have your good moments. And people look at me and going, why on earth would you want to be, would you, why would you want to have that comparison, like marriage or kid? But I, I do think that's what, and you kind of brought up the idea of gratefulness, which is that there are good moments, there are bad moments, but ultimately you have to stick with each other because something good will come out at the end of the day. And I don't know if, if that's if that's how you see the relationship you have with end no sleep or sleep activism. Do you see it in the sense where it's like almost like a kid or like your 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 spouse where it's like, yeah, you've had you've had moments where you've doubted yourself, you've had moments where you're angry with whatever that may be, but you're still going to be together and you're going to create something special. I know that's just, that just came out weird, but do you feel like that's how you see you're the relationship you have with activism and with end no sleep? 1000%. I actually think I've used kind of a similar analogy to it before, because I've, I think I've like long ago, I've said that you're kind of business, like your baby, right? Like that's what I, that's kind of the analogy I've used, but yeah, totally. It's, it's not smooth sailing. It's not perfect. I think it, it can, it definitely has its glorious moments. It's incredible moments. It's successful moments, but there are also days where I'm like, Oh, like I want to have to like people, I think when it comes to entrepreneurship or activism, people think it's like such a beautiful thing, which it, it is, it is incredible to pursue something you have so much passion for and so much energy to put towards. And it, it is such a beautiful thing. And I don't want to take away from that, but it's also some days where it's like, you're filling out an Excel sheet of like different donors names and numbers. And it's not like the most beautiful task to do, but there are certain things that you have to do to get to the better places. So there are days where it's harder than others. And there are days where it's like, you're constantly in a fight with your spouse. It's like, it's not working. I'm doing this and it's not giving results. And then you're doing that and it's not giving results. And um, it, there's so many, you know, ups and downs, but I think that's, I don't know, in, in a way that, that makes it even a better ride than others. Like it's, it's, it's fun. You learn a lot about yourself through the work that you're doing, no matter what it is that you're passionate about. And I think discipline has been key in doing any of the things, even those days where you feel like you don't want to show up. It's like you put your feelings aside and you continue to do it because at the end of the day, these are your goals um, for it. So I, I 1000% agree with your analogy. Um, it's not weird at all. I think that's a great way to put it. I'm glad that you you thought that analogy was good. Um, before I let you go, I do want to talk about the future and the reason why. So we didn't talk about this, but I just want to um, only because for clarity. So correct me if I'm wrong. You attend Columbia University, which is a school in New York City. Now, for those who don't know anything about New York City, New York City is known as the city that never sleeps. 
and you are a sleep activist trying to raise awareness about the issue of sleep activism. Do you ever see yourself becoming a politician? Because as much as I would love to support you, I would think you would be the worst politician in the city of New York. Because I can't imagine if people ask you, what is your first policy? And you're going, we need to not be, New York City cannot be known as the city that never sleeps. We actually need to sleep. And I'll be like, that's a great idea. And then everyone else is like, we need to make sure she never sets foot in the mayor office. Um, is that something, is, do you ever see yourself becoming like a politician or what is really, what does the future look like for you? And I know that's difficult because we should be in the present, but still curious nevertheless. Yeah, no, I, I don't know if I'd ever go in. I think younger me would have loved to go into policy, but I think the activism side of what I do is very tailored towards me. So like, for example, and no sleep is really going towards like using AI and technology to in like a uh, scale impact. So that's a turn that NOC has taken and we recently got funding for it. So it's been amazing to do, to see that. Um, and I think NOC is like really staying away from policy for so many reasons. But I think personally for me, that's something I'm looking to, you know, explore further. But in terms of like long-term goals, I don't know. I think as I'm growing, I'm realizing that I have so many different passions in so many different areas. Like, yes, I'm absolutely 1000% passionate about sleep and it is something I want to pursue long-term. But another thing that has also come up for me is like um, passion of female entrepreneurship in the Middle East. And that's something I also want to explore and talk about is like really seeing how we can fund more women, how we can fund more social impact strategies. And I think for me, starting a nonprofit in the US kind of gave me this perspective of how can for profits generate like generate so much money and then also have a lot of social impact because I think those are the most powerful tools. Like there are so many gaps in the nonprofit field where it's like heavily focused on donations, et cetera. And so just being in this field has opened my eyes in, in so many different areas. And I'm also really passionate about human rights. And I do think sleep, I do see sleep as a right, which is why I went into human rights anyways. Um, so I think right now I'm just trying to make, I'm trying to learn as much as I can about so many different things. And I think, I know you and I had talked about this previously, but like summer reading time, like reading different books, acknowledging like different areas that I can learn from, especially now AI technology. So long-term, I don't really know. And I think that's something I've struggled with always, but I have like yearly goals that I want to accomplish. Um, and I think for NOC right now is really, really scaling impact and building as many partnerships with high schools as we possibly can. So I'm really focused on growing the team, um, really campaigning this year. I think it's something that we haven't done previously on a big scale, we've done on a small scale. Um, and yeah, and then working in trying to find like building community for female entrepreneurs in the Middle East is kind of the second close goal. Well, if you ever do become a politician and you decide to have that policy where you want to be known as where you want New York City to be to no longer be known as the city that never sleeps, I would vote for you. If everyone else doesn't want to vote for you, that's fine. You're impacting one person. But nevertheless, I do think that what you're doing with Endo Sleep and the fact that you want to continue to inspire future or more 
entrepreneurs, especially Middle East uh, as well, or women in the Middle East is really special to see. But Nancy, I know you are a very busy person. I'm really glad we got to make this uh, interview possible. So I just want to say thank you so much for joining the podcast. And I really look forward to meeting you in person if we ever do that. Um, but I wish you nothing but the best uh, for you and for End No Sleep. And if you ever become a politician, let me know. I'll be happy to support you. Yeah. Oh, my God. Thank you so much. It's really been an honor to be here and also getting to know you and talking to you. I've really loved all the previous guests you've had. It's an incredible podcast. So honestly, such a joy being here. Thank you so much. Thank you guys so much for listening or watching this episode. If you guys liked what you saw, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram at the OMCG podcast for more information on guests, preview clips, and more. Also, share this podcast with your family, friends, whoever that may be. I love the support I've received the past few months. Please continue to support this podcast, and I can't wait to see you guys in the next episode.